early on in the series, um, the main theme of this letter that was pointed out was joy, rejoicing. And looking back at this book, we also see that at the core of this letter is Jesus. And if you look at all the verses in the book of Philippians, there's 104 of them. Jesus, in some form or another, whether it's Jesus, the Christ, Lord, Savior, any sort of combination thereof, is mentioned over 50 times. So one out of every two verses, Paul is mentioning Jesus. So as we look back at chapter one, we're going to notice that it's about joy. Our joy is found in Jesus Christ and we're invited to participate in that joy with Jesus. And that's why Paul wrote in chapter one, verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And Paul is writing that our joy isn't based on circumstances, but on God. And we are to find our joy in God. And moving on to chapter two, chapter two of Philippians is about being a person of Christ. And chapter two gives us some insight as to how to go about living that way. He writes in chapter two, verse one, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Then Paul goes on to write that Jesus humbled himself and that that what is at the core of chapter two is putting others before yourself. And part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to lay your life down, making others more important than yourself in order to be united with Jesus. And moving on to chapter three, it's about pursuing Jesus, being united with Christ. We continue pursuing him by the way we approach how we live. And Paul points out that we can attempt to do so um, through legalism, um, which he tried and he was really good at and that failed him. And then he wrote in chapter three, verse seven. But what? Things were gained to me. These I have counted loss for Christ. And Paul also writes addressing another extreme by swinging the other way to the other side, just by living according to our appetites, doing whatever we want, whenever we want, wherever we want, however, with whomever, and living a life that we want, uh, chasing our desires that we have no matter what. And Paul tells us that, you know, that doesn't work either. And then Paul gives us this third option, which does work, and that's pursuing Jesus. To continue in pursuing Jesus, having the same faith as when you first came to Jesus with the goal being perfection. And all of us are not there. There's a not yet aspect to there being there, but we are pursuing that goal. We are pursuing Jesus. So we're to be joyful, selfless and perfect. Very easy to do. Does that feel like a burden to some of you? Right. Doesn't that sound difficult, like something you don't want to do? That sounds pretty hard. But then again, think about the opposite of those things. Do you want those things? Do you want to be joyless, selfish, imperfect? Sure, it's easier, but it's pretty, pretty miserable way of living. Right. So pretty tragic way to live your life. So forever discontent, forever unhappy, forever dissatisfied. I'd rather do the harder thing. So a little bit more seriousness here. Do you know where the number one place in the United States is for suicides? What was that? Alaska. It's actually the Golden Gate Bridge. Golden Gate Bridge is number one, but in the United States, there are over 33,000 suicides a year in the United States. That's one every 16 minutes. And it's estimated that there's an attempt made every minute. And 90 people in America take their own lives every day. 
10% of the suicides in the United States occurred in California. And even though California has the lowest rates of suicide compared to other states per capita, that's still a really large amount. And there are over 800,000 attempts, and those are only recorded and known attempts. So who knows what the real number is? And it's the fourth leading cause of death for adults 18 to 65 years old. It's the third leading cause of death of young people 15 to 24 years old. And women are three times more likely to attempt suicide, and men are four times more likely to carry it through. Something's wrong. Something's very tragic with this statistic, where the discontentment is is so overwhelming that so many people attempt to take their lives and so many carry it through. And there are a lot of people here who, who, who have struggled with mental illness, who, who are struggling with mental illness, um, and who will struggle. And I just want to tell you guys that, um, that we as a community are here for you. And I, I ask, I plead with you not to isolate yourself and to deal with it by yourself. This is one of the times where, where you need community. And it's so, so hard to kind of understand that when you're, when you're going through this stuff. But there, there are resources available to help you when you're struggling with these types of thoughts, when you're struggling with um, being discontent to such an extent that you want to end your life. And there are people who have gone through some terrible things, and they've come through them, and many of them with Jesus here. And... They might not exactly have the same circumstances that you're going through or have the same um, situations that you have, but maybe they're similar and maybe they understand. And if anything, they can intercede for you with Christ and they can direct you towards other resources. And I just want to encourage you um, to come forward in terms of talking to people because we as a church family, we're here for you and we want to come alongside you and, and work with you through those things that you may feel so much burden on that you can't deal with them. And so chapter four has this incredible message for whoever's in such a place or or in a place of discontentment. And he starts out by writing for us to stand fast in chapter four, to hold on. Don't don't give up. Hold on. And Paul writes for us to be in unity, to stand together and to be like minded. He writes for us to pray with thanksgiving we're encouraged to think about the right things. Think about things that are in chapter 4, verse 8. Whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. So when you isolate yourself and you're thinking opposite of this stuff that's that's when it's kind of dangerous so bring yourself around community start thinking about these things these things and then paul writes that peace is available to us right going into verse nine now isn't that beautiful whatever you're going through god has a peace for you and paul knows how to attain peace and how to be content and this is where we're going into the last part of chapter 4 which we'll be going over tonight and in the latter part of chapter 4 paul is thanking the church in philippi and one of the main reasons paul wrote this letter was to thank the philippians and what he's going to do is he's going to use himself as an example of someone who is totally at peace and who's totally content even though he's locked up in prison and doesn't know the fate of his future 
Verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. We know that Paul has made joy and rejoicing a theme in this letter. And he's expressing his joy toward the Philippian church for the care that they've, they've shown him. And the Philippians supported Paul in his ministry financially as well as physically. Uh, we remember several weeks ago when, when we were looking at Epaphroditus. In chapter 2, verse 25, uh, he wrote, Yet I considered it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. And in chapter 4, verse 18, it reads, Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Now, why do you think Paul is rejoicing at this? I think it's simply that he felt loved. He felt cared for. He, he knew that there were people outside of his prison uh, who cared for him. And it's not the actual gift that bought, brought Paul joy. It was the giving. It was the meaning behind the giving that gave him joy. It wasn't a tangible gift. And I pray that we can provide this love and this care for people who for one reason or, or another aren't here with us any longer. That the reason we couldn't do something for someone was um, because we lacked opportunity. But not because we didn't care or that we didn't love them. That our heart is one of giving, the act of giving, and the meaning behind the giving is what we focus on and not so much the actual gift. See, it's cheap to just throw money at things without knowing why you're giving to it or caring for it, isn't it? When you just want to pay something off or just kind of like, oh, get away from me here, take it. Right? Can you imagine if we were uh, out, out here doing our cross streets ministry, which is feeding um, our homeless community every Sunday morning? If we were just standing out there patting people on the back, oh, sorry, no food, but we love you, we care for you. Right? Even, and even though Paul is incredibly thankful, Paul wants to get across that even if they didn't give, that God was with him to get him through. Right? Verse 11. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to be abound. Everywhere and in all things I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul doesn't allow his circumstances to determine his contentment. And he has learned to be content regardless of the situation. See, contentment isn't something that comes naturally. It's something that we have to learn. It's something we have to train to be. And a lot of that is relying upon Jesus. Paul relied on Jesus. He didn't rely on man. He relied on Jesus who strengthens him and, and enables him to be content in all things. Now, how is that possible? Well, Jesus is all-knowing. Jesus is all-powerful. He's omnipresent. And he'll never leave you. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So does it really surprise you that you can do all things through him? With Jesus, we can do all things, but without him, you can do nothing. John chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me bears much fruit, for without me, you can do nothing. Others may reject you, they may belittle you, they may doubt you. Jesus doesn't. Jesus is your biggest cheerleader. He is your biggest fan. He is always there for you. You're never alone. And you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You can learn to be content even when you suffer from need because Jesus is with you. You're never alone. Now, doesn't that give you an incredible sense of peace? 
that God will always be with you. And since God is with you, who can be against you? Romans 8, 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? You'll never be forgotten. So I hope and pray that we don't rely on anything to give us peace or contentment. Only Jesus can provide for that. And money won't be able to do that for you. And education won't be able to do that for you. Your, your gifts and skills and your efforts and talents, those things won't be able to give that to you. It's only Jesus. And you can't attain peace for yourself. Even in our pursuit of joy and our pursuit of selflessness, perfection, standing fast, as the letter of Philippians is sharing with us, all those things, there is a danger for us to rely on ourselves to do things to give us peace. That by pursuing those things, we find peace. And that's a dangerous thing to believe. To believe that we can attain peace on our own, that's dangerous to believe. We can only find peace in God, and peace is of God. It isn't something we can manufacture or something that we create on our own. It's something that God created. He has given us the capacity to discover that peace, to discover that contentment in Him, to venture into peace, to venture into contentment with Him. But it's not something that we create ourselves. What Paul has done in his writing is he has given us ways that we work it out and pursue it. But we must be careful that we don't think that we can attain it on our own. Don't believe that in the pursuit of peace that we can earn it. To have peace, God comes first, not the pursuit of it. God provides peace. We have it as a follower of Jesus. And what Paul is giving us are are tools to continue pursuing complete peace, which God makes readily available to us. God has given us the power to overcome discontentment. He has given us the power to stand fast. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15, Paul writes, And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Here Paul is using the armor of God as an analogy where peace is part of the armor of God. Even in standing fast where we we dig in our feet and we hold on to our ground, Paul draws for us a picture of peace to have our feet planted and standing fast. See, life, life happens. Life comes with difficult times. You will have difficult times. And when the hard things come in life, when they come your way, stand fast in God's peace. And the way to be content in your life is to submit your life to Jesus. By receiving Him into your life, He will give you His peace. And after you have received Him, you can pursue the fullness of that peace He's given you. And you pursue it individually as well as in community. So, are you content? Are you at peace? Do you have peace? Are you defined as being a person of peace and being content? There are people here who don't know Jesus as their Savior. Some are not followers of Jesus. You may be an atheist or an agnostic or anyone else who doesn't follow Jesus. And what this is saying to you is that if you believe that you have found peace and contentment outside of Jesus, you're believing a lie. But that can be changed. We, see, we didn't create peace, so how, how can you manufacture that on your own or create that on your own? None of us did that. God created it, and it's, so it's through Jesus. He has made it possible for us to step into that peace that He created. And if you feel drawn to Jesus, if you feel called to follow Jesus, all you have to do is ask Him. Ask Him for it. Ask for God's peace to be in you. And the decision that needs to be made is to follow Jesus since He is who makes it available. And you receive that peace that He wants to give to you. He doesn't want to withhold it from you. 
but you need to ask him for it. And if you've decided to make that decision to follow Jesus and receive his peace, I ask that you find someone to help you grow in that. Someone who brought you here, invited you here, someone that uh, you see serving here at the church and, and having that conversation, praying with each other and starting to go in that direction. And then there are others in here who are followers of Jesus, who know Jesus, who may believe that the peace isn't in you, though. But you call yourself a believer. And that's a lie, too. God is our peace. And there isn't anything we can do about that. Peace originates with him. And he provides that to you as a follower of Jesus. He provides a perfect relationship with himself through Jesus. It's done. He did it on the cross. It's finished. You have peace with God. There's nothing more to do. So you believe it and you don't believe the lie that you can't be at peace or you can't be content. Jesus took care of that for you. And take that reality of having peace and you continue pursuing it. You might not feel it, but continue pursuing it, standing fast, praying. And you do this by standing firm, standing together in unity. So a question is, are you united with the church? Are you united with regeneration and what's going on here? Or or do you have a spirit of division? Would Paul point some of us out here in this church to get along like he did to Yodia and Syntyche? And how about at your workplace? Is there someone you don't have peace with? So pursue completing that peace. Unity is something to fight for and something for us to pursue. And it's not to say that you can't share your uh, feedback as to how things can improve or, or things like that. It's not saying like, oh, you have to buy in everything we say. You have to buy in. Otherwise, it's division. I'm not saying that. I, I welcome the feedback. Criticism's harder to take. Feedback, though, if you are really wanting to be constructive for this body, we welcome it. And even criticism we welcome because it's not like I can reject it anyway. So we welcome it. But if, if you're having like different factions of trying to separate people, I don't know. Unity is important. It's so important. If you want to make changes, if you have some sort of beef with what's going on or how things are made, share it with people that can actually make a difference in, in, the, in the church. Right. And not just having like a little side conversation. Share it with the leadership, share it with the ministry leader that you have a problem with, share it with myself, the elders, and don't just have little side conversations. Unity is paramount for this church, and we need to be united as a community. And there's so, there are so many things outside of this community that are seeking to knock us down. Why are we allowing us to be weakened from the inside? Why? And if you are one of those that are causing division, if you're causing some sort of chaos, I just ask that you please stop. I'm not I'm not threatened by you. It just bothers me. But we want a community of peace to stand fast against the things that are going to attack us from the outside. There are enough things outside of this community attempting to knock us down that we don't need it inside as well. And if you sense someone who is divisive in our community, someone who is causing chaos, tell them. Just tell them. And if things don't change when you tell them, please come talk to me or an elder of the church and we'll go talk to them together. And we want a united church, a united community, one that can move forward to address the things that come along in life, like struggling marriages, like debt, 
like unemployment, like various other things that knock people down. Real things. And as a church community, we need to have peace here to stand fast. And we can't have that without unity. And we need to be able to stand fast to combat the hardships that come our way. They will come our way. People have things that they deal with. And otherwise, we're going to be knocked down and we're not going to be able to hold our position. Through unity, prayer with thanksgiving, meditating, thinking about the right things, it helps us to live out standing fast and having peace. We want a fighting chance as a community. If you are a divisive person, please stop. Stop. And we, we want you here, actually. I, I want to be part of your life, even if you, you're critical. I don't care. I can take it. You know, I, I want you here, but you're really you're putting the rest of us at risk. Right? I, I want to help you out with whatever you're dealing with, and I ask that you would help me out with what my problems are too. But we all need to take an analysis of our own hearts. See, we're all shaped by different things, and we're all in different stages of life, and we have people following Jesus and others who are not. We have mature believers and less mature believers. And we all have a chance to respond to the gospel tonight, even if you know Jesus. And one way is through communion that we have here every week. Every week we have communion elements out so that we can remember with a thankful heart and prayerfully consider our life for the past week. And so every week we come by and during that time of remembrance and during that time of prayer, prior and during communion, we allow ourselves to absorb God's peace. So remember that there has been a peace established between you and God. And if there is someone here that you don't have unity with, where there is a lack of peace, I ask that you deal with it, just as Paul asked Yodia and Syntyche to deal with their issues of lacking unity. Restore that peace between you and your brother or sister, and this is a way for us to grow in peace, to pursue peace and to stand fast in unity. And another way to respond to the gospel is through prayer. We have prayer available every week after the last worship song right up front here. We have a prayer team here that is available to pray for you. And we have a heart of prayer. The people you came with, you can pray with them. It doesn't have to be these folks. We encourage you to pray with folks, to bring things before God with thankfulness. And there's a last way to respond to the gospel today that I want to point out. It involves some self-introspection. Ask yourself whether the people in your life Notice peace in your life. Do they see peace in you? And if they do, this is a deeper question. Do they know why you have that peace? They might see the peace, but do they know why you have that peace? And as a follower of Jesus, you have something that someone doesn't someone who doesn't know Jesus has. You have peace with God. You have something to share with them. To be redeemed in that relationship there. You can show someone how to have peace with God. There are people in your life that do not have peace with God. And you can share with them why you do have peace with God. Verse 14. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. So Paul is simply letting them know how he appreciated what they were doing for him. That he was in this state of distress and it was good for them to send support to him. Verse 15, now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. 
Paul remembers that the Philippians supported him early on in his ministry, Acts chapter 16. And, and they're supporting him once again in his need. In his earlier journeys to Athens, Thessalonica, Corinth, he wasn't being supported by any church except this Philippian church. And Paul is sharing with them his gratitude and he remembers their generosity towards him. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Paul is not looking for more from them. He's not manipulating them by thanking them so that he can get more from them. He's genuinely wanting for them something for them, not something from them. In Acts chapter 20, verse 35, when Jesus is quoted as saying, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And so often we present things wrongly at the church. And we're guilty of this at regeneration, too. We're, we're, and we're changing this, but we've been guilty of asking people what we want from them rather than what we want for them. And we're guilty of presenting what we need rather than how we want to bless our church family and our community. I'll use the children's ministry as an example. Um, I'm not trying to pick on the children's ministry. It's just that in every church I've been to, they're always asking for children's people. So that's why I'm going to use them as an example. So we often present that we need people to help out in the children's ministry. We, we always say that, right? And what we, what we want from you guys is for you to serve in the children's ministry. And I think how we've presented this is kind of off. The message isn't that we need people. God's our provider, right? He has an abundance of people to serve and he's a generous God and God's going to provide. It's not the transaction that we're looking for of just like, oh, people, check our check mark, check mark. We got people, just bodies. We are looking for transformation. We are looking for people who have a heart for service for those kids and for other families here and, and to be able to influence so many lives. Not what we want from people, but what we want for people. So instead of saying we need people for the children's ministry, we tell the church family why we want people to serve in the ch children's ministry. Right? We tell them why. What we want for our church family, for our community. One of the reasons why is we have single parents in our church and we want to bless those parents by allowing them to be part of the church service and, and give our children's ministry an opportunity to bless their children. So it's a blessing for those single parents. It's a blessing for those kids. We're not wanting anything from them. We don't want anything from you. We, we, we desire that to be a blessing for those families. So what we want is something that is a blessing. And another reason is for the kids. Our children's ministry is growing and it'll be great for the kids to know more people within the church. Positive role models for them as, as they get older and they deal with more difficult things in life. The infant toddlers now who are going into preschool, who are going into the children's ministry, who are going into the youth ministry and adolescence. It's going to be good for them to have people in their life throughout those different stages to pray for them, to talk with them, to invest into them. And it's not to say that the children's staff here is incapable of that or is not doing that. But what about that kid who just isn't quite connecting to who we have serving? It helps to have a diversity of people so that we can connect with more children. There are so many kids in this neighborhood. I can't possibly think that I can reach every single one. There is somebody that has a different skill set, that has a different background, that has a more commonality that can reach that kid better than I can. So I can give so many more examples of 
of how we want to bless people involved in children's ministry, what we want for them rather than what we want from them. But I think you get the picture. Right? And I'm not picking on the children's ministry again, right? I'm not picking on them. It's just one of those things that is mentioned all the time that we need people. Right? We need people. We need you guys to serve and all that stuff. And I think that the reason that churches are always asking for help there is because we tend to ask people what we want from them instead of sharing from sharing with them what we want for them, what we want for our church, what we want for our community. And we tend to tell people what the church needs rather than sharing with how we want to bless them. We God is not limited. God's not limited in, in what we can give out and in, in our love that we can give out. We can afford to be generous because our God is the source of everything we give, whether it's our time, our treasures or our touch or our talents. Generosity is a mark of a, of a mature follower of Jesus. It demonstrates that you are learning more about love because love involves giving. Now, how do you know that a child loves you? How do you know that a child trusts you? How do you know that a child likes you? They give you something. Right? They give you something. I was at a wedding yesterday. My, uh, my daughter is out there handing out bubbles. Like there's these bubbles out there. And so she's handing them out. And she's giving them to different people that my wife and I were talking to there. And she's handing them out. And she's also picking flowers. I don't know if that was legal. But she's picking flowers and giving them to people. Some people she wasn't giving them to because she's a good judge of character. And, um, but it's actually a very basic behavior of love, right? That they give something, like your kid drawing something to you or giving it to you. Like this morning, my daughter gave me a paper clip and a post-it note. Right? But then it becomes more difficult um, out of selfishness. It becomes more difficult to give away things when you think that that's all you have, right? When you think that, oh, this is all I have, so I have to ration it. I can't give that out. But, but our God is unlimited. We can give it out. We, our love is unlimited. We can offer that stuff, right? When, when we think that this is all we got, then you get greedy. You get selfish, so you don't want to give it out. And it's like uh, my daughter with these um, fruit bars, she has these like organic 100% fruit bar things. And if, if I buy her one, there is no chance I'm getting any of it. Like she will stuff it in her mouth. Like, can daddy have a bite? Like all of it's, it's gone. But if, if I got her a barrel full of it, she'd give it to me. Maybe. You know, so when we, when we have a lot of it, we just give. So as a church, we have a lot of love to give. We don't have to ration it out. And you know, talk is cheap. To tell someone you love them and care for them just out of habit or emotion. But what, what, happen, what happens when it it's, doesn't go further than that? And I use Cross Street's ministry as an example. You know, when, when someone's walking by and they're hungry and, and we don't have anything for them, we just pat them on the back and say, oh, we love you, we care for you. And they're saying, oh, we're hungry. Oh, well, I'll pray for you. And um, we love you. Intentions can still allow starvation. What's inside of us needs to motivate us to do something about what is moving us. There needs to be an action taken that demonstrates the genuine love that's within us. And if you suffer from covetousness, if you suffer from greed, do you know how to break yourself of that sin? Be generous. 
Covetousness, greed is broken by generosity. And a couple of weeks ago, I received a letter from uh, a parent or parents of someone who's part of our church family. And they thanked us for caring for their daughter, for providing rides uh, from and to the campus. And they thanked us for the ministry that Regen is is doing not only for their daughter, but but for college students. And, you know, that can only be done through your generosity. People sacrificing their time to do a carpool. People's giving of their talents and of their touch to have places of fellowship, whether it's the book club or other types of gatherings. People giving of their treasures to provide for the barbecue we had this morning for the college students. For starting a new college ministry. All those things take a generous spirit. And we see how generosity works in our community. Just in regards to that, that's just one aspect of our ministry here at Regeneration. But you see how generosity plays in that part. We don't want anything from them. They, they, don't, they can't give us something in terms of monetary things yet. They're students. It's just what we want for them. We want to bless them. Right? We want them to, to feel that they're getting closer to Jesus and we don't require anything from them. We want for them to get to know God better, to be more mature in their faith. Verse 18. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. A sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Paul is drawing similarities to the gifts the Philippians have given him to the sacrifices mentioned in the Old Testament in Genesis 8:21 and also in Exodus 29. So our giving, giving to God, uh, God's kingdom is similar to the Old Testament sacrifices in that they're not cheap. It's to be sacrificial, hence the word sacrifice, right? And willingly given. See, bulls and rams and things like that back then, those weren't cheap things. Those weren't cheap things to purchase and to sacrifice. And they weren't actually just like, oh, that one's missing a leg, so it's cheaper. We'll give that one. They were unblemished, right? They were good. And it shouldn't be given against our will. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, Paul uses the same terminology in reference to the sacrifice Jesus made for us. And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Verse 19, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. God supplies all of our needs no matter what the circumstances are. He supplies all of our needs from his riches, which are limitless. And this verse was probably really meaningful to the Philippians because we're not talking about an extremely wealthy church here. Their giving was sacrificial. It's recorded in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, as Paul is writing to the Corinthians by writing favorably about the Philippians. Let's read that. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. He's talking about the Philippian church here. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. The Philippians gave willingly and out of their own need. They gave after first 
having given themselves to the Lord. Verse 20, chapter 4, Philippians. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Do you notice that Paul has fruit even when he's in prison? Verse 21 and 22. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. So those are who, are who are in prison with him. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. What has happened there? Paul has shown the prison guards, the, the servants and the slaves working the prison, who Jesus is. He's shared the gospel and they've understood. All the saints greet you, but especially those of Caesar's household. And God is working in your life even when you don't think that things in your life are looking so great. The gospel can be shared anywhere, even if we're limited in some way. His message is not limited. So if you feel trapped in a situation or whatever, the gospel message is still available to people to come out of your mouth. And keep that in mind as you go to work or school or home or wherever you're at. Be sensitive to what the Holy Spirit wants you to share in terms of the good news with someone else. And let's close the book of Philippians with a benediction. One of our interns, Dave Barda, suggested closing with a benediction uh, to me a couple of weeks ago. And it's actually a tradition I grew up with, the church uh, I was raised in. And a benediction is a word of God for you. What God has for you. And this is from Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for making peace available to us. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrificial love in dying on the cross for us to make that available to us so that we can have complete contentment and complete peace. We ask, Lord, for um, any, anyone here who is struggling uh, with contentment and with peace, that they would find, find support here in our community. Just ask God that they would be able to reach out so that we can uh, pray with them and intercede for them uh, spiritually as we pray for them. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.